parenting, but really discipleship in the home and, and really the principles deal with discipleship overall. Our priorities really as parents, but our priorities as really Christians, disciplers. But uh, we want to talk again, just to, just to remind us this morning a little bit about what we talked about last week. Remember, we have a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an obvious reality for us as Christians committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, committed to the Lordship of Christ in all of life. That simply is saying that he's the one who calls the shots. He's the one who decides for our life. And we know that through the scriptures and you, you will not do that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why it has to start there. All of these things that we're hearing about might have some benefit to you on a general way as someone who doesn't know Christ, but they'll never be able to be lived out in honor to the Lord Jesus Christ without a relationship with him. So that's why you have to start there, even when it comes to discipleship. This is part of the, I think one of the things that confuses us sometimes and confuses people when it comes to the scriptures, because we, we take the scriptures to an unbeliever and we say, this is how people should live. Well, an unbeliever has no ability to live that way. No ability at all to live according to the things of scripture. They don't have the Holy spirit. So the only thing the scripture tells an unbeliever is repent and be saved, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message to an unbeliever. Everything else in there is for the Christian or the Christian who is either walking in obedience or a Christian who's disobeying. And when they're disobeying, it says the same thing to them that it says in one sense to an unbeliever, repent and walk in obedience to Christ. And so, so there has to be this relationship to Jesus Christ. That's why we started with that commitment. And then of course, when you get into the family, there's the commitment to the one you're married to. If you are married, there's a commitment to the spouse and the roles that, that God gives and how he gives those in scripture and a commitment to our family. We are disciplers within our homes. That is our task. Um, we could even say that the strength of the church is born forth or seen worked itself out upon the strength of families because that's part of where we get church leaders, those who have shown themselves to be consistent, effective leaders in their homes, right? And so it says in first Timothy three and Titus. And so the strength of the family <clears throat> depends then primarily on the place of Christ in your heart as an individual. So if the church neglects the scriptural teaching on the family, then we've forgotten a major portion of what the Bible teaches us about the strength of the church, the strength of the home, the strength of society in general. This is part of the problem with our society as a whole, even right now, because they're destroying the family. The family has been relegated to, to be destroyed. The nuclear family is being redefined, uh, to things that God never intended and the destruction of the family just leads to the destruction of society. And so we have to have a commitment to the, to that as God sees it. And of course, flowing from that then is a commitment to the others, which is to evangelize others in the world around us. <clears throat> so that's where the, where the priorities that we are to have. <clears throat> but we also need to discuss the second thing and that is our goal. Our goal. 
Your notes might have it listed as the parent's goal, but if you're not a parent, you can just say the goal of a discipler. This is your goal. As someone who is to is called by Jesus Christ to disciple others. Right? God has provided for us principles in the scriptures. And he has empowered us by relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to accomplish the very goal as believers that he has required of us. And that goal is encapsulated really in, in, in a simple sentence, if you will, in Paul's epistle to the, to the uh, believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 Paul sums up what he's talking about. It says, so it doesn't matter what you're doing, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. We know from our study of 2 Peter in chapter 1 that God has granted to us how many things for life and godliness? All things. He has granted to us all things for life and godliness. It's comprehensive. The scriptures, therefore, are sufficient. They are completely and absolutely sufficient for everything we need in life. So everything you need as a Christian parent in the home, everything you need as a Christian in the world, everything you need to raise your children up, as God has commanded you to raise them in the scriptures is found right there in the Bible. You don't need anything else. You don't need words and observations from men. You don't need, in essence, the counsel from men, things that are made up from man. All you need is the Bible. You need the scriptures. They're sufficient to, to give you everything you need to bring up your children to the glory of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says that it equips us for every good work. Every good work. Again, that's just like Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10 and Peter is saying in 2 Peter chapter 1 that the scriptures are sufficient. They're comprehensive. They cover everything we need for life. Now, again, someone might say, well, doesn't an unbeliever benefit from the things of the Bible? If an unbeliever reads the Bible, can't they benefit from that even though they may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, yes, but only superficially. Only superficially. Um, why would I say that? Why would I say they can only benefit superficially? Anybody? Joe? Uh, okay. For those of you who might not have heard what he said, he says, because to do the scriptures without a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm kind of summing this up in your words is to just be moralistic, to do moral activity without any relationship with Jesus Christ is to be just outwardly moral by your own definition, actually. 
but it doesn't bring honor and glory to God because you're not doing it for the glory of God. You're doing it for your own general morality. And so that's all it does. There's a superficial reality to it. But the transforming power of of following the Scriptures because you have God living in you and you're doing them can only be done by those who are redeemed. Like someone turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And read verse 14 for us. And again, these are just comments we're making about our goal as Christians, our goal in discipleship, our goal in parenting. All right? The unredeemed can't live to the glory of God because they have no relationship with God. Why, why is that? 1 Corinthians 2.14 gives us an answer to that question. What's it say? Who's got that? But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Okay, so there you have the answer as to why, or at least part of the answer as to why the, the unsaved cannot live to the glory of God. Because they don't understand the things of God from God's perspective. Those things are spiritually appraised. They're only understood by those who have the Spirit of God because they're separated from God. Not the information, but the person who doesn't know Christ is separated from God. They live for self. So following after all the principles that we are learning can only be done by the Christian to the glory of God. And they'll only be really, in one sense, I I hesitate to use the word effective, but they're only done to the glory of God when we do them God's way when we follow what God says God's way and not by our own ways. So that's the kind of homes that we're to have. We're to have homes that follow the word of God according to how God defines it, not according to how we define it or according to how the world defines it or according to how our own thinking defines it, but according to how God defines it, where within the home, like the Bible says, the husband is the provider, the leader. 1 Corinthians 11, 3, 1 Timothy 5, 8, clear passages on the essence and role of the husband in the home. We cannot change that. We cannot just arbitrarily make that whatever we want. That's how God has designed it for His glory. For His glory. For His honor. Likewise with the the woman or the wife. The priority for her is the home, the family. Titus chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Clearly says they are to be in that role. That is their God-designed role. Not because of some kind of sense of inferiority that God has made, but because that's how God has designed it for His glory. 
And so if our heart struggles against those things, the issue is not what the scriptures say. The issue is where is our heart in reference to the scriptures? That's why it goes all the way back to that reality and the priorities of our life with our lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ over every area of our life. He has to be Lord, which means when the Bible speaks, we listen. When the Bible is adjusting my own lifestyle because what I'm doing isn't in accordance with the Scriptures, I, I, I can either recoil against that and find the difficult path, or I can embrace that and find the path of honor and glory to God, which God honors. So that's the difficulty. That's the struggle. So if my ultimate purpose as a believer or as a believing parent is to glorify God, that's my ultimate purpose. Then what's the goal within discipleship in the home, within parenting, that's going to fulfill that ultimate purpose? What's the goal within parenting that's going to fulfill that ultimate purpose? If I was to ask you, what is your goal as a discipler in the home, how would you answer that question? What's your goal? Anybody dare to give an answer? Who's a parent? Yeah. I'm sorry? To lead our family in Christ's way. Okay. Anybody else? Kevin, what's your goal in your home with your family? Get my kids to know Christ. Anybody else? Bring glory to God. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let me, Doug, let me take that, let me take that and drive it a little closer and more closer to home since you said we don't have any kids, right? There are plenty of people here who don't have any kids in their home, right? My kids are grown outside the home. However, like I've been trying to emphasize, that doesn't stop our discipleship, right? I'm, and I'm not just talking with our kids, but discipleship as a Christian. So, Let's, let's point that back and say, okay, in discipleship relationships, what's your goal? Okay. Okay, to be an example and an encouragement to them. Anybody else? Okay, if we're going to fulfill... Somebody, Ruth? Sure. Right. Sure. So we have to be living our Christian lives out. If I'm repeating what you're saying, we have to be living our Christian lives out in, in a way that's honor and glory to God before them. 
or what we say to them isn't going to have any kind of reality to it, right? Sure. What if, what if we as parents are as the best we could ever be as Christians in the home? I mean, let's, let's draw the scenario that you never make a Christian mistake. You live to the glory of God in everything you do. Will that guarantee that your kids will know Jesus Christ? No. So let's go the other way. Let's say you do everything wrong. You're saved, but you're stumbling all the time, fumbling all the time, sin around every corner. You don't, you know, before your kids, you, you sometimes are the worst example. Will that guarantee your kids don't know Jesus Christ? No. So, so does that affect our thinking on how we think about our Christian lives before others? when it comes to the goal of discipleship. Our desire of discipleship is, as a Christian, should always be that someone comes to know Christ, right? Whoever that is, whether it's a child in the home or somebody I'm around, right? I want them to come to know Jesus Christ. But I have no guarantee of that, do I? I have no guarantee of that in anything. So if I'm to do everything I do to what? To the glory of God. I'm not to do everything I do in order to try to produce a result. Because I can't do that. I can't produce anything. I... This, this is part of the problem when it comes to homes and it comes to relationships in the home, when it comes to discipleship. We work so hard to try to modify outward externals. If I do this, A plus B equals C. It's kind of this, you know, right? If I do this, this will be the, the result of that. And yet God says, I don't want you pursuing that. I don't want you going after that. I want you doing everything you do to my glory. Not to get a end result. The desire is there. Sure, we have a desire that my kids would be productive citizens and that they would not be rebellious in the home and that they would do everything that I say and, and all of those kinds of things. But the reality is that the goal of discipleship, and when we're talking about parenting, the goal of discipleship in the home is simply this, to be a faithful instrument in the hand of God for actively doing what God has commanded me to do before them so that they, in one sense, will see who God is and see themselves for who they are, but so that Really, by my act before God, God's glorified, regardless of what they do. Regardless of what they do. Jose. Lord willing. Lord willing, they'll obey him if they know him. 
right? And that's what you are living. You're living to glorify God in your life. Like Ruth said, we are to be examples. Doug said we're to be examples. But we're being examples not so that we can produce a little a little Christianized child or a Christianized person, a morally modified person with Christian morals. I'm not living so that I can do that. I simply want to live so that God's glorified by me in my life. Because that's going to mean sometimes, and we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I think it's important. That means sometimes that when it comes to discipleship relationships, I have to do things that will oppose that person. I'll have to do things in order to glorify God that will oppose them. I have one little guy up here saying, no, that's not true. It is true. (laughs) Right? We have to do that sometimes. In discipleship relationships that aren't parent-child relationships, we have to sometimes come to a disciplee and say, listen, you're out of line. You're not doing what God would have you do. You claim this, but you're not doing it. It would be terrible, wouldn't it? It would be terrible for me as a pastor of this church to always say, oh, you guys are so wonderful. You're doing such a great job with everything you do. When in fact, we're not. That would be horrible. That's not love. That's not loving us. You're not loving your kids when you just allow them to do what they want to do. No, you have to be a faithful instrument in God's hands. God, we I always think about this when I was raising our kids. When I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and he's handing out rewards, he's not going to hand out rewards because my children are great little citizens who do things right. No, he's, gonna, he's only going to look at how my life is honor and glory to him. What deeds are wood, hay, and stubble, and what aren't? He's not going to look at my children and go, yeah, I'm going to hold you responsible for that. I'm responsible to do what God's called me to do, but then my children are responsible to answer to the Lord for what they do. So the goal is to be a faithful instrument, a faithful steward in the hand of God. That's our goal. That's our goal as Christians. That's our goal as Christian parents. And we get that mixed up sometimes because we think our goal oftentimes is to raise this certain little product. And so when we do things and we adjust things in our house, we're adjusting them not to glorify God, but to accommodate us, to accommodate our little life, to accommodate our little things that irritate us. We don't want to be irritated anymore. So we adjust this way because if I, if I adjust things then the behavior changes and my kid won't irritate me anymore, that's why we do it. Oftentimes that's not what God says. God says, I want you to just be faithful to me, Colin. Sure. Sure we do. We, 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 we do that with all kinds of things, right? We elevate our kids. We elevate our stuff. We elevate things far above the priority of serving and honoring the Lord. And kids are a big, a big part of that, a big part of that. In fact, you find that oftentimes in, 
in people who have been married a long time, in which case the children were idols all throughout the marriage. And then the kids leave the home and the husband and wife are left looking at one another going, who are you? I don't know who you are because they idolized the kids so long. They never got to, they never built the most important relationship of, of the home, which was theirs. And so when the kids are gone, they don't even know each other anymore. And oftentimes they just say, see ya, we're done. It's a sad thing. But part of the problem is that because they've idolized children and used them as objects for their own glory. So we have to be faithful instruments. That's the object. That's the goal. It's the goal and the objective of our Christian lives to be honor and glory to God as faithful instruments in his hands to do what he has called us to do. Now that is based upon two foundational things, two foundational things. The first one is God's view of man. In other words, our understanding of this faithful instrument principle that's born in scripture flows out of this idea, this reality, God's view of man and God's directions to us as disciplers. Okay, or God's directions for parents, you might even say. So let's look at this first one, God's view of man. God's view of man. Contrary to popular belief, especially in our days, it's getting heightened more and more and more and more and more. Man is not good. Now, that's not a surprise to anybody in this church. We here uphold the truth of the word of God, but man is not good, right? Just look at the the three well-known views that were born out in psychology over the, over the decades, right? Sigmund Freud says, I think this is in your notes, man is an in, in, instinctual animal with two major instincts. This was the view of Freud from his psychological humanistic view. Man has two instincts, love and hate. So you as a, as a discipler in the home, you as a parent, your, your job is to just not warp that. Right? Don't, don't do anything by your own actions that might somehow in some way be detrimental to the personality of your child by opposing their instincts, their basic drives of love and hate. Don't do anything that might upset that. In other words, all your actions are based upon this little reprobate in your home. Of course, he didn't believe in God, so that's why he viewed things that way. B.F. Skinner came along after Freud and said, man, no, no, it needs to be a little different. Man is born a blank slate. In other words, man comes into the world neutral. Nothing on the tape. He's, he's just a neutral position. He's a blank slate, and environment programs that blank slate. So whatever is written on it from the environment around him, and that environment includes the home and includes outside the home and all kinds of factors that do that. And you see that, you see that much in our society today with the victim mentality, don't you? In other words, I am the way I am because I'm the victim of A, B, C, D, whatever it is. That's a psychological view of man, not God's view of man. It is not, a biblical view of man that is a worldly view of man. And so Skinner said, parents just need only to manipulate the environment and you'll condition the child. In other words, do behavior modification things. Change the structure. 
do this, do something else in order to modify behavior. And when you do that, you're helping the environment. You're creating an environment, a cohesive environment for this little thing to be able to have its blank slate written with good stuff. Now, it's true, environment certainly can affect us, certainly has impacts, right? Even Paul said that to the Corinthians, right? A, a, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, if you hang around with corrupt people, you're going to be corrupt. I mean, that's in essence what Paul was saying. Sin affects. A little poison goes a long way, in other words. So there are effects of environment, but it is an environment that makes you. It is an environment that makes you. Carl Rogers came along after that and said, well, man's just a flower. He needs to unfold with his opportunities, self-actualize, become all that he's inherently in himself. Right? So the child's self-motivated by his inherent goodness. A person is motivated by who they are on the inside. And they, we just need to let that out. We just need to let it go. You ever heard that phrase? Let it go. Some of you parents, I'm sure. Disney. Just let it go. Be who you are. Be everything you can be. You're just a little God yourself, in other words. So if you just give them freedom to get in touch with their own self, their own feelings, self-actualize, you'll blossom. You realize that's part of the philosophy behind this whole idea of gender identification? That you get to choose your own gender. You're just self-actualizing. You're just finding who you are. Years ago, the idea of gender wasn't even part of our language. Why? Because biology was the determining factor. In fact, the word sex wasn't used in a derogatory sense back in science years ago. Sex was the term that described who you were by your biology. You ever notice on applications years ago, it used to say, what sex are you, M or F? Now, now you're seeing a change. The change is, what gender are you? Why? Because gender has become a term of a social construct. In other words, it's something determined by society around you or what you think in society. So you can be anything you want, and that's your gender. That's part of the lie of the psychologist who says, no, you just need to self-actualize to become the real person. The natural man, his goal is to feel good about himself. That's the natural man. Why? Why does he need to feel good about himself if he's already good? He just wants to feel good about himself. But the un, that's an unbiblical perspective. Sadly, it's entered the church. It's entered the church at large. It's been around for decades, sadly, in the church. Christians buy off on the idea. But that's a direct contrast to the view of man that God has. God's view of man from Scripture is that man is not good. He's not good. But he's inherently evil. In fact, someone turn to Romans chapter 3 and read for us what we studied months and months ago. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. 
Paul quoting from the Old Testament. So this is in all of the scriptures. What's it say? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. That is the condition of man. Just prior to that, Paul said in chapter 2, you're without excuse. Everybody's under the wrath of God because you're without excuse. You've denied God. You're depraved in your own mind, in your own thinking. And here he says what the Old Testament says in Psalm, chapter, Psalm 14, there is none righteous, not even one. That's comprehensive. That's the condition of man from God's perspective, and that's the perspective that matters. Why? Why is man in that condition? Because sin affects the whole human being. Sin affects the whole human being. It doesn't just affect part of us. It affects all of us. Like, notice what Jesus said in John chapter 8. John 8, verse 34. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin. Now, stop right there. Is there anybody who's never committed sin other than Jesus Christ? Certainly not in this room, right? So we've all sinned. So Jesus is saying, every person, truly I say to you, everyone who commits a sin, and that is a comprehensive reality of all of humanity, is the slave of sin. This means sin affects everything. Sin is everywhere in us and with us. It affects the will of us. It affects our mind and our understanding. Just as Paul said in Romans, the mind is hostile to God. We're futile in our understanding, Ephesians 4 says. It affects our will. It affects our mind. It affects our emotions. Do you realize your emotions are affected by sin? How many of us have ever made a decision and said in our hearts, be honest, well, it just felt right. Well, it just felt right. I'm going to tell you, folks, you trust your feelings, you are trusting something that is fallen, something that is affected by sin. You cannot trust your feelings. They're there. God has given us feelings and emotions and those things, but they have to be evaluated by what the scriptures say. I've known people in churches who have left churches who have said it just feels right. They have no reason, no real reason, no biblical reason. It just doesn't feel right, they say. That's frightening. That's frightening. That's right. That's subjective. You, if you go by your feelings, you will change every time your feelings change. For us who are husbands and wives in this room, you ever not like your spouse? Yeah. 
There are times when you just don't like them. Man, what would happen if you followed after that feeling all the time? Wouldn't be a very happy place. Can't do that. Emotions have to be evaluated by the Word of God. And because sin has affected our will and our mind and our emotions, therefore our outward behavior is a reflection of that. It's a reflection of that. Right. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Notice how Paul describes the deeds of the flesh. This is behavior. The behavior of sin is evident. I mean, that, you could, we could read it that way. This is the behavior of sinfulness. Verse 19, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, someone mentioned that this morning, sorcery, enmities, that's fighting, strife, that's fighting, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And in case I missed any, Paul says, and things like these. These are all outward actions of sin. And he says, and things like these, which I forewarned you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice, that's the idea of continuing action in a life with no sense in which there's any modification to it. You don't care that you just go that way. <clears throat> no care. You practice those things. The reality is you're not a Christian. You shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's pretty, that's pretty severe, isn't it? I mean, here's, here's the condition of man. We are, we are affected completely by sin so that our behavior, the outflow of our life is that without Christ. So there's no aspect, no part of our human nature that has been untouched by sin. This is why the term total depravity has been used over the centuries to describe the condition of man prior to being saved. They are dead. They are totally, completely dead in their sin. You're in the hospital. You're about to enjoy the birth of a child. That child comes out kicking and screaming, and they are a reprobate sinner. Cute. God has painted them up cute. Had he not, we probably would discard them right away. But he puts that familial love in our heart. We have that familial love, that connection that he's given humanity with one another, that relational reality. And yet here we are with this young, little, reprobate sinner that God has now given to us and said, okay, you be a faithful instrument in my hand to show them who I am. That's my task. 
And they're going to challenge you in every way, just like you challenge me. What God said. And you're to bring the truth to bear in their life. Beautiful little baby. Totally depraved. Now, not all sinners are equally as evil as others, right? We don't all exercise our depravity to the nth degree that we could. Not all of us are murderers of other people. But we are all completely able in our sinfulness to do anything and everything that sin does. We cannot rid ourselves of the guilt that we have before God. That's the issue. Right? Our guilt is revealed in the actions that we do. Our behavior, the outflow of our sin, it just reveals our guilt. We are guilty and we show our guiltiness by how we live. That's the reality of humanity. So it's in that sinful condition that we arrive in the world. It's not good like Freud and Rogers and Skinner said. It's not that we need to self-actualize and just become self and we open up the door and we give a little environment that might help them become the flower that they are. No, they are sinful. They'll never do what's right. They'll never honor God. They're not righteous, not one of them. And so into this world, we come that way. We know this to be true because... How many of you have taught your children to lie? I don't see any hands. Were you taught to lie by your parents? Have you ever lied? Everybody should raise their hand right now. Or we're lying. <laughs> right? Nobody teaches your children how to be selfish. Nobody teaches them how to go and do something wrong. Why? Because that's the natural inclination of a sinful heart. That's why Jeremiah said it that way in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. That's who we are by nature. We're fallen. So when we're discipling people, when we're discipling our children in the home, when we're as Christians and we don't have children, our children are gone, we're discipling other people or sharing the gospel, discipling, we come to them with that understanding. We know they can't do any of this. They can't do it to the glory of God. They can't honor God the way God desires to be honored. And so when we're sharing those truths with our children and we're expecting them to carry it out, we expect them to fail at those things because they can't do it to the glory of God. And what does that do? That drives them to the reality that they're a sinner before God. And we get to share with them that truth. But they get to learn who God is and that God is a forgiving God. And that if they will embrace him and turn from their sin and embrace Jesus Christ, they can know God personally. See, that's the goal. That's the goal. The fact that our little reprobates in our house can think or speak or act in a way which is relatively good in comparison to somebody else doesn't mean that they're not depraved. Doesn't mean that they're 
good people. They could be the best citizen in the world and yet still be going to hell. People praise Mother Teresa for all the work she did, for all the good that she did in the world to the poor and those kinds of things. But without a relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't care how many people you feed, I don't care how much good you might do according to the world, you're still going to be in hell. Because that's the problem, your relationship with God. Your guilt before God. So an entire lifelong act of goodness will not allow you to stand before God without being condemned. Right? Isaiah 64, 6, right? All of our righteous deeds are what? Filthy rags before God. All of our righteous deeds. Your works mean nothing before a holy God. If they are not done through the power of God to the glory of God for the sake of God. And we know why, because God requires perfection. And so our task is to help our children see their sinful condition before a holy God. That's our task. Help them see who they are, that they're lost before God. Our task in any discipleship relationship is just that. To help them understand that no external works or behavior can help them be saved. Nothing. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? You're saved by grace through faith and not of yourself. Nothing can save them except Christ alone. And so we have to teach them to trust Christ. Trust Him as Lord. Trust Him as Savior. So the Scriptures don't teach us, they don't show us that, that, the, that what controls a life is external things. The Scriptures don't teach us that. The Scriptures teach us that what controls a life is internal. It's your heart. It's who you are. It's what the Bible calls your heart, the control center, not the blood pumping organ inside your chest, but who you are on the inside. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, God declares that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. The intent of his heart is evil. It's wickedness all the time. Every human heart has heart disease called sin because the root of evil is within the heart. We have a heart problem, not a behavior problem. The world says we have a behavior problem, right? The world says we can just get things right, legislate morality in the right kind of way, that behavior will do the right thing, right? We'll just all be doing the same thing behaviorally. That's not the problem. We're not going to fix our society by legislating some kind of morality. We're going to fix society by Jesus Christ. That's it, a heart change. So a person's life is a reflection of the heart. I'll just show you that. Go to Proverbs 4. This is a great Old Testament passage that you need to remember when you're dealing with, with your own children, with your own disciplees. 
something you need to think about in your own life and when you think about others. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flows the springs of life. From it flows the springs of life. We are on the outside, but we are on the inside. You know, you can take a rotten piece of lumber. Al will know this. You can take dry rot wood and you can put a lot of paint on it and make it look okay for a time. But on the inside, it's rotten. Might look good for a little while, but sooner or later, the rot's going to come out. It's going to take its effect. That's the same thing with behavioral modification. Sooner or later, you can, you can modify behaviors. We can, I mean, we can train dogs. You know, you put enough treats in front of somebody, they'll do it. The fact is their heart's coming out sooner or later. That pain only lasts for a little while. So the issue in our discipleship is not primarily an external issue. It's an internal one. It's dealing with the heart. It's dealing with the heart, not simply behavior. Certainly behavior is involved, but it's dealing with the heart. Behavior is a reflection of the heart. So when you see behavior going on, you know there's a heart issue. And so you ought to be focusing your discipleship on the heart issue, not the behavior issue. Because when the heart's changed, behavior will change, right? If you have rotten roots, what do you get for fruit? <laughs> get rotten fruit. So... We want to make sure that the root is good. That's the heart. So our concern should be to help our children or our disciples understand their sin. Understand their sin as we expose them to the law of God. As we expose them to the, what the word of God says about them and about their heart. How it reveals their deceitfulness, their desperate wickedness in what they do. Think about the things you tell your kids and how to deal with interpersonal relationships within the home with their siblings. How are you, how are you doing? Are you dealing with the heart? Or are you dealing with just the behavior because it's frustrating to you? That's what you have to think about. Because the heart is the issue. We want to lead them before the cross of Christ so that they can see their heart before God and know that in Christ they can have that dealt with once and for all. That's the desire, right? We desire that they'd know Christ. It's not our goal because even after they know Christ, discipleship doesn't end, does it? Right? If that was the case, all you who are saved wouldn't come to church anymore because you would, don't need discipleship. You got it all wired. But we all need discipleship. We need one another. Iron sharpens iron. So we need to be discipled still even after we're saved. Because sanctification is a process. So our desire is that our children might come to know Christ. Our desire is that our disciple might come to know Christ. That's our prayer. That's our desire. But our goal is to just be faithful in God's hands to bring the truth to bear to the issues of life as we walk along. And pray that God would produce His result in it. And once saved, then we help them walk in holiness. Walk in holiness.
because it's only Christ that can change them. It's only in Christ that they'll find hope and forgiveness and salvation. Power to live in a manner that's pleasing to God. It's only in Christ that that can happen. We don't want our, we don't want our, our disciplers or our disciplees to do things simply to appease us. We, we, don't, we shouldn't want that. We should want them to do things in order to honor God. And an unbeliever can't do that because they're guilty before God. And so every time they fail, the Word of God shows them that so that they might turn from it. That's the point. So, so this first rung on which we stand for our goal of being a faithful parent is to understand, have the right view of man. We have to have a right view of our children, a right view of how God's perspective is for man. Man is fallen. Man comes into the world guilty. And our job is to make sure that we're faithful to show our disciplees just how guilty they are before God. bring the truth to bear that they look at and go, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. I can't keep that rule. You're right. You can't. You can't. But in Christ, you can. And the reason you can't now is because you don't know Christ. You need to repent of your sin. That's, that's the problem, sin. Is that, does that make sense to everybody? And a lot of these things we'll talk about down the road because we're going to get into, you know, our duties as, as disciplinarians and those kinds of things as we talk about it down the road with, with future lessons. So we'll finish this one up next week.